Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to the second episode of Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and you can follow us at Matchpoint Can. You can subscribe on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Matchpoint Canada. And stay tuned, listeners, as well, because we will have a couple of Rogers Cup ticket giveaways upcoming at the end of the episode. So another major event has come and gone from Spain, and Kiki Burton's and Novak Djokovic both hoisted major clay titles on the red dirt in Madrid. And now we're heading to the final Masters 1000 on the surface for the men and the final premier event for the women. That's in Rome at the Italian Open. And very pleased uh, to join us today, writer for Metro UK and the co-host of the Love Tennis podcast, journalist George Belshaw. George, thanks so much for coming on the program. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we want to start on the women's side. And uh, for Kiki Burton's, uh, it seems she continues to rise up the ranks, notching uh, her first premier mandatory this past week in Madrid and uh, beating last year's French Open winner, Simona Halep. She's now up to a career high number four, nine career titles. Six of them are on clay. What do you think has just evolved about her game in the most recent years uh, to really uh, produce such great tennis and kind of make her a contender as we come into our second Grand Slam of the season? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. I mean, um, I've read a few few things on this from other guys who've kind of known Kiki uh, a lot longer than I have. I mean, there was a great, a great quote from uh, the American uh, New York Times journalist Christopher Clary. He said he'd spoken to a, a Dutch journalist about 10 years ago about the state of Dutch tennis. And he was like, I think we've got this really talented young girl, but I'm not sure she has the head for it. And then there's this uh, WTA piece saying that, you know, she was considering retiring in 2017 because she just wasn't sure what she wanted out of her career. And she just had a big kind of refocus and thought, right, I'm just, I'm just going to go for it now. So I think she's someone who's had the talent for a long time, but maybe just not been mentally ready to do it. And boy, has she been climbing up the rankings for the last few years. And, you know, the crazy thing now is up to world number four, highest ever Dutch woman in the rankings seems just really, really focused, obviously a brilliant clay player, but she uh, won that big title in Cincinnati last year as well, beating Halep as well there. Um, and, you know, the crazy thing is she world number one by the end of the French Open if results go away. So this has been an incredible rise. A um, lot of talent now just seems very, very focused and it's great to see. And uh, given all those fantastic results, uh, it, it just seems to me that she remains one of these names that kind of flies under the radar. Do you think there's any particular reason maybe she doesn't get some of the same fanfare as uh, some of her other contemporaries? I mean, <laughs> tennis is one of these funny sports, isn't it? I think it, it depends a lot where you're from. It depends where you kind of make your name at the biggest moments. You know, at, at the end of the day, the, the players who are most well-known are the guys who do it at Grand Slam level. I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of kind of regular German people saying they don't know Alexander Zverev that well, for example, because mm-hmm. he's not yet done it at the majors. I know Bertens has had one semi-final at the French before, but I think last year she posted her best uh, slam results in all the other slams. So, you know, I think there's an amazing chance this year. There's no reason that Kiki Burton should be fearing anyone in this French Open field. She's proven she can do it against Halep. Um, you know, she she is, in my opinion, one of the top two favourites to win this title. And the only reason she's not the favourite is because she's just not done it at slam level yet. And that's a different kind of mental task. But boy, can she play on this surface. It's really exciting to see how she's going to get on. 
She beat a pretty decent player in the finals there in Simona Halep, who many are, are considering, and rightly so, a, a legitimate threat to repeat as French Open champion. Uh, Simona's first big uh, real clay court test of the year makes it to the final, beats some decent players along the way. Uh, she's still my role and Gara's favorite. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel. George, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Simona right now? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. She comes in for me as the favorite uh, for the French Open. I think, you know, when you're looking at the difference between a WTA tour level title and a, a Grand Slam title. Um, there's obviously no, it's not the same with the men's where there's a, an obvious jump to best of five and best of three. But I think the big difference is when you're getting into the latter stages of the competition, it's that kind of one day break between every round. It's, it's almost like an extra kind of mental test. Like, right, I've won my quarterfinals. I'm into the semifinals of a Grand Slam. Holy cow, I've not been here before. Now I've got to sit around for a day waiting for this to happen. You know, you kind of lose momentum. You get all this kind of dwell time to think about it. And I think that's the sort of area, if you've not been there, got the T-shirt and done it before, that's where it's you know going to be problematic. So with Halep's, you know, between her and Burton's in terms of clay court tennis, I don't think there's much in it at the minute. You know, it was a pretty, okay, Burton's won in straight sets, but it was a pretty tight final. You know, a lot of games going to juice, a lot of close rallies. Um, but I think the thing that gives Halep the kind of edge over Burton's at the minute would be the fact that she's been there, she's done it, she knows what she's going to do. But having said that, you know, she's never defended a Grand Slam title either. And we saw Garbin Muguruza come to the French a few years ago, breaking down in tears after a fourth round loss. You know, there's, there's a new set of pressure on your shoulders when you, you come in as the favourite. So it's a really, really interesting tournament. But as you guys, I'm sure, will know, any WTA event at the minute is just full of surprises. And hey, Serena's back as well, so you can't rule her out either. So I wouldn't play huge wads of cash on anyone, but I think it's... <laughs> but Halep is my pick too. I don't have huge wads of cash anyway, so that's okay. It's not really a problem for, for me. But, uh, I mean, certainly before Naomi Osaka getting back-to-back slams, we had sort of a revolving door. So uh, in terms of, of players repeating, you're right, we haven't seen a whole lot of that lately. What One player who hasn't made a Grand Slam final yet, but perhaps she's getting closer, and she had a great run as well in Madrid, is uh, Belinda Bencic, who is back near her career-high ranking almost, uh, sort of flirting with the top 10 again. And it's funny, we saw her here in Toronto four years ago have her breakthrough moment at the Rogers Cup when she won as an 18-year-old. That almost seems like a, a full career ago for some players, it seems like so long ago. And here she is still only 22 years old and looks like she's ready to reassert herself back at the, the top of the women's game. Uh, you guys at Metro UK spoke with her recently, and she wrote a uh, first-person column, which I found really interesting, how she talked about she wasn't prepared for the spotlight back at that time, and coming up behind uh, Martina Hingis and Roger Federer, which, understandably so, had a lot of pressure on her shoulders. Uh, what uh, sort of strikes you most about uh, the way Bencic is playing right now? And after sort of speaking with her, uh, what, what do you expect for her moving forward this year? Yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting spending a bit of time with Belinda this week. Um, I, I think she's a, you know, a very kind of reflective person. She obviously had a lot come to her so quickly. You know, getting to world number seven when you're 18, I think it, it, it's very easy to look at players who get there and do that, and then just really struggle with it. Um, and you know, she she's kind of taken from. Her long injury layoffs as well. You know, she, I know she was talking a lot about the expectation that were problems, but you know, she's had some serious kind of injury setbacks for someone so young in her career. Uh, and one, one of my favourite 
parts of what she wrote was just saying, you know, after all this stuff, you know, winning Dubai this year, the, the biggest moment for her was just getting back on the court after six months and hitting. And she said she can just never kind of get that feeling back again. And I think what that's brought to her is just a real sense of freedom, the sense that, okay, you know, uh, I'm going to lose and losing's, you know, pretty crappy or whatever, but it's never going to be as bad as that. And I think that gives her this kind of wonderful sense of freedom, a wonderful kind of chance to really, you know, just go out there, swing and really give it. And I thought, you know, this year she's ne- she's never been that great a player on clay, but to kind of post semifinals in Madrid suggests, you know, she's getting there on the surface. I wouldn't, you know, say I think she's a real um, early favourite for the French Open. I think she's still got a bit of work to do there. But she says... You know, grass is her favourite. So looking at Wimbledon this year, I, I think she could uh, pull up a few trees and she's not far off the top 10. I think she's someone, realistically, the door's wide open for her to be top five, maybe by the end of the year if she keeps going. So I'm excited. You, you bring up a good point, George, about how some players come back after a layoff and they're just so excited to get back on the court and we see some great results from them. Uh, I know nobody wants to be off due to injury, but it sort of speaks to maybe, you know, a little bit of balance, uh, which is tough to find in such a long, grueling season, which is professional tennis. But it reminds me also of Sloane Stevens when she came back a couple of summers ago and not too long after that, she's hoisting her first Grand Slam trophy. We all know how Roger did when he came back at the start of 2017. Uh, there's certainly something to uh, to think about taking a break, even if it's not due to injury, but just a, a purposeful break maybe at times to sort of rediscover your love of the game and, and come in fresh, maybe lose some uh, some bad habits that you've accumulated yeah absolutely i mean novak's another good recent example of someone who's done that and rafa's done it a few times in the past a lot a lot of these a lot of these guys who step away suddenly come back feeling invigorated fresh um you know it, it, as you say it, it, it's virtually you're traveling for 40 weeks of the year one way or another you're hitting balls constantly um even when you're not actually playing matches you need to stay perfectly in shape you know Zverev have spoken about that quite explicitly in the past that you know it, it doesn't matter if they're only playing 20 weeks of the year it's all the prep that goes into getting ready for each of those weeks that's so kind of draining and you know this is a one of those conversations about whether the season should be a bit shorter as well because maybe we'd see a bit better of these players if we gave them two months off a year rather than one month um but i you know, I, I don't think any player would go out there and be like, man, I really need an injury to get out of playing <laughs> for three months or whatever. But, you know, it, it certainly, if you're in the privileged position where you can step out of the game for a couple of months, I think a lot of players might find that really helps their results, you know, kind of get that mental thing. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? Because I think it gets lost when you're working for something so hard every single day that you can't see the bigger picture and understand what a wonderful position you are in life that you get to travel the world, travel to all these nice places and hit a tennis ball every day. I think it's it's not a bad living when they step away, really. Oh, I wonder if it would do wonders for our reporting and our writing if we took a little break from time to time and uh, came back fresh. I, I think it would certainly help me. I think uh, <laughs> maybe maybe my employers, if they're listening, could uh, give me three months off or something, and we'll we'll see wonderful results by the end of the year. I promise. 
Uh, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can subscribe on SoundCloud. Our guest today, George Belshaw. You can find him on Twitter at Belshaw George. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590 and find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. You earlier alluded to Serena Williams obviously making this uh, comeback at, at the Italian Open, and she's making her first clay court appearance since uh, French Open last year, and we were all hyping up that potential clash between her and Maria Sharapova, and of course Serena Williams uh, got injured there. It didn't happen. Uh, look, Serena doesn't have any matches under her belt coming into this clay court season, while the other players, of course, uh, have been going through it already. Uh, despite that, I have to consider Serena a favorite really anywhere she goes. Or, uh, are you kind of of the same uh, frame of mind in, in that scenario? Yeah, I mean, on, on clay, probably less so than other surfaces. I, I, I do kind of feel right now that while I'd never write her off for the French Open, I feel like she's more likely to be ready to win Wimbledon um, than Roland Garros right now. But I mean, come on, she's someone just never to rule out, is she really? I mean, she's just such a fantastic player who can, as she's proven in this comeback from pregnancy, you know, she can just come back and get to Grand Slam finals when you're kind of like, surely she won't be physically ready. And again, we're in a situation where she's got a really, really tough draw in Rome this week. Um, I think she's got Venus next after winning her first match. And maybe a a match with Sloane Stevens, although... uh, we Brits will be hoping that Joe Conter can be her next opponent rather than Sloane, but perhaps that's a little fanciful. Then <laughs> um, Alep probably round four. So, you know, it's a bit of a baptism of fire there. So you, I personally can't even see her winning Rome this week. Um, never mind kind of getting these matches in for the French Open. Um, but it's, it's interesting times. You know, she's had a few kind of mental wobbles in many ways as well, you know, Although she got to these Grand Slam finals, she was she felt a bit vulnerable. Obviously, you know the Osaka final blew up for lots of different reasons. But you know Naomi believed she could beat her. There, there seems and Kerber was exactly the same. She came out and she believed she was going to be able to beat her. So I think there are question marks over whether she's as feared as she was. Um, and I I just think. I just feel she needs a few more matches. I mean, I know she's always been pretty good in the past of just turning up and doing it, but maybe she just lacks that little bit of sharpness in the big moment. But, you know, I've been wrong about this a million times before, and I'll be wrong again, so I wouldn't take my word for it. Well, I, yeah, no, it, it's tough to predict. I'm I'm not necessarily penciling her in as uh, someone I believe is going to win the French Open. But uh, as you said, it is a brutally daunting draw in, in Rome and will be fascinating to see her play her sister once more. And uh, it feels like it's been uneven for her since her comeback and it, 2018 felt like an, an uneven year. And yet, Part of that is we, we set the standard so high for Serena Williams that we see two finals Grand Slam appearances and we say like, oh, that was just an OK year uh, because of all that she has done in the sport. So I'll be curious to see how she handles Rome and if she can uh, gain some match play and momentum heading to the French Open. I did want to ask you about uh, our, our top Canadian on the women's tour. Uh, we got a chance to speak with Bianca Andrescu on our last episode, and she was forced to withdraw from Rome, but uh, we are anticipating she will play 
Leah Roland Garros. And given her just incredible 2019, uh, you know, essentially coming out of nowhere and her penchant for enjoying the clay surface, what would you make of uh, chances for Bianca uh, at this second slam of the season? Maybe sort of, I don't, I don't want to call her a dark horse, but one of those names that could certainly get on a run and, and make the second week. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about Serena being one of these players who can just turn up and do anything, but I think Andres is going to become one of these players in the future. I mean, you guys, I'm super jealous of you at the minute in terms of the talent <laughs> you've got coming through. I mean, Bianca, Felix, Dennis, I mean, th- this is just the ultimate generation. I think you've got three future Grand Slam champions, um, and Bianca's form this year has just been absolutely remarkable. I mean, the way she beat uh, Kerber uh, in Indian Wells was just sensational on the, on the back of a really, really big run there. Um, I think she's got everything about her in a game. You know, she's Although she's not the tallest, I think she's got one of those kind of presences that makes her look a lot bigger on court. She kind of looks like she's dominating and then that kind of comes just with this kind of aura that the best players have. And she's got huge shots, big serve, what a brilliant touch as well. She's got all this variety. I mean, she is a fabulous watch, fabulous player. Again, I would say it's not ideal that she's not had many matches and realistically she might turn up at the French Open without a single match, you know, since uh, Miami and always coming back from injury is going to be tough, particularly for a, a teenager, but never, never rule her out. I think she's fearless. I think, She's got everything, um, and I suspect she's going to be a very, very good clay court player in the future. So lots to be excited about, even if it's not this year. I think you guys will be enjoying her career a lot in the uh, years to come. And, and this is exactly why we enjoy having guests from other countries on our podcast, because they pump our Canadian tires up a little bit and, <laughs> and make us feel good about what's, what's coming down the road. I mean, you know, George, we've never had you know, a single success like this. Already people are saying this is the golden age of Canadian tennis because apart from Daniel Nestor and nothing against Daniel and his incredible accomplishments in the doubles world, we've never had these types of of players in in numbers as we're having them now. So we're certainly enjoying uh, the early stages of what, uh, I mean, who knows how it'll turn out, but uh, it's really great to hear things from, uh, you know, a tennis analyst like yourself from overseas, um, just um, saying how, how excited you are to uh, to see that for us. So you, you've just booked your next ticket on the show just by virtue of your, your previous comment. Thank you. Uh, if we switch over to the, uh, the men's side for a moment and look at the ATP tour, Novak Djokovic certainly had a lot of question marks coming into Madrid due to his dip in place since winning the Australian Open. Uh, has he answered those questions with his straight set win over Stefanos Tsitsipas? I know we have a tendency to always sort of have a short term, hey, whoever's won recently is suddenly the favorite. But do you think for Novak, he's over that little blip in play that we, uh, we witnessed? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the thing is with Novak, and he, I don't think he'd ever quite admit it, but he, he didn't quite seem as bothered about winning in Indian Wells and Miami this year. And, and by not bothered, I mean, it, for him, we're talking about a 5-10% dip where he just wasn't as focused. But this week, after a, a pretty tr- awful run in Monte Carlo, I mean, he was playing some pretty terrible tennis. It just looked like he was out of practice, not kind of focused, not hitting well. Um, it, that was just completely gone in Madrid. And I think the dangerous thing for everyone else on this tour is just how ordinary Djokovic can make every player look on his day. I mean, 
I know Sissipas was tired and he'd come through this massive match with Nadal. But Djokovic just absolutely pulled him from pillar to post. He was kind of like Bambi on ice at the back of the court, never knowing where this guy was going to go. Um, and there just there just are no holes in Djokovic's game. And he looked like he'd sorted his movement out. The backhand was firing. The forehand, I thought, was absolutely remarkable on the in, in the final. You know, the backhand's always kind of very hyped up a shot. We know he's got probably the best backhand in history, or as Sissi Pass put it, the best backhand any human beings ever had. Um, but, uh, you know, the forehand, he was really getting on top of that. And if, if that shot's working on clay, I, I think it's trouble for everyone else. And, you know, the door's wide open at the minute. Rafa's not quite there at the moment. Um, that's not to say he won't be by the French Open and, you know, this time next week, as you say, in terms of recency bias, if, if Rafa goes through Rome and dominates everyone and, you know, beats Novak off the court in the final or something, then suddenly it'll flip back in his favour. But I suspect Novak can go and win Rome this week. He's got a good draw. It looks like he should go straight to the final, to be perfectly honest. It's certainly, um, sorry, it's, it's certainly making things more interesting this year as opposed to some years where Rafa just cleans up in these pre-Roland Garros events and there's very little for us to, to you know, truly be objective about when it seems so certain he's going to steamroll his opponents again. This year we've had, you know, Fanini, we've had Dominic Team, now Djokovic, who knows what we're going to see in Rome. It's just so much more interesting and that, Rafa may still go ahead and end up getting his 12th, uh, you know, title in Paris. Mm-hmm. But, but it is kind of neat that we've got this open discussion now and, and it could go any which way, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see Team Djokovic and Nadal as three pretty even favourites right now. Um, team's played some great stuff. He he could have beaten Novak in the semi-finals on a different day. You know, he had a lot of chances. He probably wasn't quite as clutch as he was against Rafa uh, in Barcelona the, a couple of weeks before. So, you know, don't rule him out. And, you know, it is also worth saying that Madrid's conditions are very, very different to Roland Garros. So in terms of the tennis itself, you know, I think it would, it's not necessarily worth reading too much into that result in isolation. But it's just more a mental thing for Djokovic. I think he just gave off this sense that he's ready to come and win all four majors again. You know, in his mind, I probably think he's got, you know, he wants this Novak slam. He probably thinks... I can win the calendar slam this year. And then he's thinking, right, my next French Open, I can have caught Roger. You know, that's that's sort of the mentality he's giving off at the minute because he just doesn't believe he's going to lose. And to be perfectly frank, I just don't see anyone beating him unless Rafa gets back to that sort of uber, super clay level we saw of him in the last years. But, you know, whatever's going to happen, as you say, this is as exciting a French Open as I can remember. And I suspect it's not going to be as simple as uh, Nadal just turning up and winning it. Yeah, it, it certainly makes it uh, the most fascinating French Open we've had in some time. Uh, Novak, to me, uh, reasserted himself as as the best player in the world with his performance uh, winning the title this past week in Madrid. I, I still am leaning at this moment, Rafael Nadal, uh, the slight favorite, given that I, I just think that best of five animal at Roland Garros, probably where, you know, the surface is going to play uh, slower, of course, than Madrid is, to me, maybe the greatest challenge that we've seen in tennis, beating Rafa Nadal in a best-of-five set on, on clay. But uh, right right now, uh, I think there are only really three true ultimate contenders who can, who can win the French Open uh, on the men's side. I, I was fascinated by Roger Federer's return uh, to play 
on clay and play in Madrid and be incredibly competitive uh, because he was right there with Dominic team and, and held a couple of match points. Uh, of course, worked through uh, an easy match against Richard Gasquet and ran into some trouble against Gael Monfils. What did you make of his uh, first tournament back on the clay in three years? And is he kind of, I don't want to call, you know, a, a top uh, four player in the world, a, a dark horse, but is he sort of under the radar as, as we get closer to the French Open? I I would be very, very, very surprised if Roger Federer turns up and wins the French Open based on what I've seen so far. Um, you're right, the team match was incredibly close. Uh, team was kind of missing a lot in the first set. What, we, what was really clear was that Roger, by the second and old, and the third set, I think he was kind of just relying on that serve to keep him in it. And I'm not sure will happen so much in Paris. Um, but that said... You know, there were a lot of encouraging signs. And he's someone else who, like Serena, is going to need a bit of match play just to get into it. Now, it's good he took the decision to play Rome. I think that, that shows me he's taking this quite seriously. You know, he's, he's trying to give off this impression that, you know, he thinks he can turn up and play with complete freedom. But, you know, when you see him losing match points against team and how he is when he comes into press, you know, this does mean a lot to him. And I think he does believe he can go on and win the French Open. Um, I suspect the other three are just too strong for him, to be honest. And I think there are players out there who really fancy their chances against him, particularly on those uh, slower courts in Roland Garros. I think people will be able to get at him. But, you know, as as is the case with Serena, never write Roger Federer off. He can wow you at any moment. And it just takes one of the other three guys to have an off day to open things up for him, um, whether he needs to beat them or not should be irrelevant, really. Um, and Roger's still one of the best clay players we've probably seen, really, in history, if you look at how often he's been so close to Rafa. Uh, same could be said for Novak. You know, these guys have still reached a pretty high level on clay. They've just come up against this absolute monster. Um, so if he's still going to be good. He'll still be there and thereabouts. But I suspect he will fall short. Yes, I, I think that's uh, probably the consensus, but certainly someone you would not be wanting to face uh, within the first week or early second week uh, of a draw on any surface, let alone clay, where he can be uh, almost equally as dangerous. Uh, just sort of the, the last lead-in uh, to this Roland Garros, uh, Rome, obviously Rafa Nadal's had so much success here. For him to be that consensus favorite, do you think he needs a title uh, heading into the French Open, or, or is that not going to be necessary for him to get to that utmost level we've seen on clay over the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it's a re- really good question. I mean, I, I sense he needs a bit of confidence at the minute. I sense he needs a bit of, he needs to win a big match. You know, big, losing to Team Novak and Stefanos, uh, for Nini before, but I think. You know, those are those are big matches he's kind of gone into and come up against an opponent who believes they can beat him at the minute. And I think he just needs to kind of lay down a marker uh, of just kind of reminding people who exactly this guy is. Um, do I think he could win it without running Rome? Of course. You know, I think week by week, obviously coming back from injury, he's, he's building himself into form, you know, the, the strange thing about his loss to Sissy Pass, in a way, was just how well he played against Vavrinka the day before. I mean, I thought that was the statement match of the tournament. It kind of looked like it was the moment Rafa was really, really back to his best, kind of thumped uh, Vavrinka with ease, really. Um, and then it just didn't quite 
pan out the forehand went away again um, against Stefanos so yeah I think a bit of confidence would certainly help him um, yeah I, I think this is a big week because it could be team in quarterfinals um, it's, it's easy to see him losing quarterfinals here which would be a really really worrying result again um, but again best of five is a, is a different kettle of fish and I think Rafa will be ready and certainly I'd expect him to be reaching the final at least in uh, Roland Garros if the draw is good to him. George, before we uh, wrap up and let you go and, and catch some sleep over there, um, I did want to ask you while you were in Madrid, were there any players uh, that you got to catch perhaps for the first time live, either on the, the men's or women's side, that you know you, you got to see for the first time up close that really impressed you uh, with their on-court skills? You know, I'm always, when I go to tournaments, I like to see players I haven't seen play before and kind of uh, get up to speed on the next crop of, of player that's coming along. Anyone in particular that you'd like to sort of mention that you think we should uh, keep an eye on moving forward? Oh God, that's a that's a that's a tricky question. I don't I don't think there was anyone that I saw for the first time up and close in Madrid. Uh, in Monte Carlo, uh, was my first real time looking at Felix live, um, and he's someone I'm super super excited about. I know we kind of mentioned him before, um, but that that was the first time I really caught him live in Monte Carlo, and I think he's he's got so much about his game. I, I think before. Um, We've all known about him for a long time and what he kind of brings. But what I, I didn't really kind of grasp about him was just this kind of physical presence he's on court. And it sort of said the same thing about Andrescu, kind of the way he kind of dominates the court, the way he kind of just looks the part. He looks like he's going to be this kind of great player. And I think the very, very best players, uh, same with Sissy Pass actually now, you know, they just look like they belong on these courts. They look like they're going to own it. So, I think that that's the guy I've kind of seen this clay court season who I've known a lot about but not really had the chance to sit down and watch one of their matches live who has just, you know, really impressed me and I'm just so excited for you guys because I think you're looking at a multiple Grand Slam champion and the sky's the limit with him. If, you know, touch what he stays injury-free. He's, and I sat, you know, sat down with him uh, in Monte Carlo as well at this kind of uh, media breakfast. He's a lovely kid. He's, very very calm he believes you know he's he, he's earned the right to be there even though he's so young he, he believes he belongs with anyone and you know pe- with patience with time he's, he's going to de- develop into a wonderful wonderful player so yeah I'm I'm very very excited for him yeah we are too looking forward to seeing what he can do and uh, despite uh, his loss today in in Rome like you said he's just a kid there's so much to uh, to come for him and and Dennis as well here in Canada uh, also George we look forward to uh, speaking to you again down the road thank you so much uh, for joining us and taking the time especially at such a late hour for you back at home we uh, we hope to speak with you again in the future and enjoy the uh, last couple of clay court tournaments here thanks a lot guys pleasure that was George Belshaw, writer for Metro UK and co-host of the Love Tennis podcast. And, um, you know, interesting what he says about how he feels Nadal can still win Roland Garros, even if he doesn't win in Rome. Uh, that would be a first. Nadal's never won in Paris without having at least one of those lead-in clay court tournaments. So it, it will be interesting to see how he handles that pressure if he's going in without a tournament to his name. That's true. Um to be honest, though, I think if Nadal, even if he loses, say, quarterfinals uh, upcoming, 
potential clash with Dominic Team. I, I still think we have to pencil him as the favorite. And that's, you know, throwing out all these results we're seeing over the past few clay events leading in. I know how fantastic Novak Djokovic is playing right now. I know how dangerous Dominic Team is on the clay court surface. Fabio Fanini beat him in a big match. We haven't seen a big time win from Nadal in 2019 yet. But then I go into the Roland Garros numbers and think over how many years, uh, 15 years we're talking, he's lost two matches on that surface. And the other time where he, he didn't win was a withdrawal to due to a wrist injury. Uh, so it's just a different animal beating Rafa Nadal in his barn on a best of five. Uh, he, I, I think it's his favorite type of clay when you get to Roland Garros. He's so comfortable there. You look at his 2017 run, he didn't lose a set. Obviously, we didn't have uh, Novak playing the way we're used to at that point. 2018, much the same. I I mean, other than what Diego Schwartzman giving him a brief scare, it was a routine finals win over Dominic Team. while Martin Del Potro didn't give him any trouble in the semis. I I think there are really, there's there's one big name to me who can, you know, uh, fearlessly enter a Roland Garros final and take it to Rafa Nadal and push him to the brink. And that is Novak Djokovic. And you look at the finals they've had and the matches they've had in the past on clay at the French Open, even matches that Nadal has won. They've been incredibly close grinding five set matches. And if Nadal is not able to raise his level that slightest bit by the time we get there and say we're getting into the second week of Roland Garros, um, that's where maybe you give a slight edge to Novak. Uh, and then Dominic team would be the third contender. That's for me. And, and the draw is going to be so important, I think, for Rafa as well. How much time does he expend? How much energy does he expend on court leading up to a potential final that's against true. Novak? Uh, you want to make those matches as routine and quick as possible so that you're saving some of your best tennis still for a final because you know if, uh, if Rafa and Novak meet in that final, it's not going to be a, a three-set uh, you know, match uh, one way or... Or, or the other. Um, one final point I want to make about Rome coming up here is that uh, seven of uh, Rafa Nadal's 11 titles uh, at Roland Garros have come after he's won in Rome. So if he does capture the Italian Open, look out, that's a pretty good omen that he's coming in hot and uh, and he's able to take that, uh, that game uh, to that next level too. Yeah, that could certainly be an enormous con- confidence boost for, for Nadal if he does get a title at, at Rome. I think that would not only vault him uh, over Novak, maybe in the ratings for, for most people, but I think if you went into betters, they, they'd lift no- Nadal over Novak. I, I think uh, it's going to be very, very close. And then to me, it's just it's just three names. And we've deta- detailed the WTA side. There's so many fantastic names, and, and Kiki Burton's was on our watch. So great for her to see her win her first Premier Mandatory event. And I really love the way she plays on that surface. She's got a solid kick serve that she can utilize on clay heavy topspin forehand and she can work the angles of the court and use a drop shot so she's uh she's of a mold that really lends to the clay court surface so i'm very interested to see how she will stack up come rolling Garros. you are listening to match point canada the official tennis canada podcast remember you can find us on twitter at match point can and subscribe on soundcloud soundcloud.com slash match point canada well we're thrilled to have such a packed episode, we have a second guest of our program joining us now. Former tennis player, he reached a career high ranking of number seven, 12 career singles titles, 
two semifinals appearances at the Australian Open and uh, Wimbledon. And he also had some success at Rogers Cup back in Canada when it was referred to as the Canadian Open. And he's served as a national coach for the USTA and now runs his own academy. Thank you so much, uh, Tim Mayotte, for joining us on the program. Uh, Ben, thank you so much for having me and Mike as well. So excited to uh, get into the nitty gritty. Sure. Well, Tim, we'll get right to it then. I mean, uh, being someone who played the game at a high level, someone who knows the challenges and demands of the players, it it struck many as odd to see you not get a chance at the very least to sort of pitch your case for the now vacant position as player rep on the ATP Council. How surprised were you about that uh, decision on their part? And can you share some insight into the process and how things sort of went down for you this past week? Well, I was uh, I was surprised and a bit saddened, but uh, as I look back on it, you know, I kind of understood that uh, I've been out of the uh, out of the eyes of the players for quite a long time. So I guess I, at some level, I could understand it. Uh, so it, it was uh, definitely frustrating. I was also surprised that Brad Gilbert, as well, didn't get a uh, a chance to to get, at least get over there to Rome uh, to speak to the council tomorrow. But uh, because obviously Brad is even more in the public eye than I am. So uh, I thought he would have stood a better chance. So it is, uh, I think it is frustrating. I I actually emailed with Brad. He was sad, but, uh, you know, he also had some faith that the players could get it together and and, uh, make a good choice. How how did you find out that you were not selected to move forward? and, And why was there not any sort of back and forth or dialogue to give you a better understanding of of the reasons, do you think? Well, I think that the I found out just by an email on Wednesday morning, and I think there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. I asked multiple times about uh, how they would make the decision, and they just said a number of times that it was they would just come up with a short list. Now, what I should have said is who's making the decision. Maybe they misunderstood me. Uh, I wanted to know if the player council, the whole player council, was making the decision. That obviously is critical in the way it should be done. I didn't get that answer, but maybe I should have asked the question differently. Um, but uh, so it's it it was done the right way. I don't think it was communicated to me the right way. And uh, but regardless, I was I was pretty disappointed. Not so much because I thought I was the only candidate. I just believe that being on the inside of the sport for so long and then now being on the outside, I feel like the players needed to hear what it sounds like and looks like from the outside. How have things changed, would you say, over the past, you know, 30 or so years since you uh, left the game in terms of the needs for the players back then versus what the most sort of, uh, you know, concerns, growing concerns are right now if you're a player on the ATP Tour? And and why did you feel, what strengths do you feel you had and and why were you so passionate about wanting to uh, contend for this role? Well, just a... Just a uh way of background for your listeners, I'm not sure if we said at the top, I actually served on the board for six years uh, on the ATP board, and I was president of the player council position that Novak Djokovic now has. So I do have a lot of inside experience. I don't think that the issues themselves have changed that dramatically. I think what has happened is the, uh, the numbers have gotten much bigger. Uh, obviously, the numbers of the available uh, monies on all sides 
And I also think that, unfortunately, the conflicts of interest with the players and the tournament directors have gotten deeper and worse. And that's the primary point that I needed to make, and I hope they take into consideration tomorrow as they go in for this vote, is that we saw it with Justin Gimbelstab, but also with uh, a couple of the tournament directors. The conflicts of interest are just terrible for the sport. So if he put aside Justin's issues with the law, which obviously didn't uh, bode well for the for the anybody, uh, that's one issue. The second issue is that his production company was creating content for the ATP tour that he was being paid for. Uh, I just learned of that a couple of weeks ago, and I was actually quite shocked to think that a board member would be benefiting um, from a contract that he directly is involved in uh, you know, giving the okay to, and that's just, <laughs> that's just ridiculous that, uh, that that kind of conflict would, would be in place. You, you can't serve everybody in the most, uh, the most honest and, the and, uh, the best way possible with that kind of conflict in place. And the players have to get ready to start hiring people who are not in that conflicted position. We've uh, we've dealt with uh, this political side uh, on the program the the past few episodes and sort of detailing the issues with with Justin Gimmelstab and, and thankfully uh, he won't be facing that uh, May fourteenth vote with which, which is of course tomorrow um, so that is at least set aside but but clearly that lends itself to some deeper rooted issues which which you're alluding to right now do do you think there's a big problem in terms of communication with the board and its fellow players and sort of uh, is more transparency needed? And, and do you think some, t- I, I know Rafael Nadal's reference, maybe uh, getting a, a representative who's, you know, Spanish, fluent in Spanish. Do, do you think there are language barriers and are, are most players on the tour truly aware of, of these issues uh, behind closed doors? The answer to the question, one, the, the communication has to be much better. That does not mean that it's easy but it has to get much better from the, from the board to the players. And that's why I was going to propose as well that the board member actually become a full-time person. Part of the reason there's, they have conflicts is that the board member usually wants and can do other things to make more money. So if you were to actually increase the pay of the board member and insist on no conflicts, and then they would basically travel 30, let's say 30 weeks a year with the players. Then you're with them all the time. You're understanding the issues on the ground. And I was going to petition that as a part of the solution. Full-time or at least 25 to 30 weeks on the road and then no conflicts to go along with that. And then you're going to get a much better chance of being able to communicate. Now, obviously, Rafa saying that you want a Spanish speaking makes total sense as well. And uh, it's it definitely uh, you would hope that somebody would come forward and of uh, Spanish speaking in the Americas. And, and I think there are a couple actually that are going to run for the position. 
But the biggest issue is the time on the board and the face time that you get with the with the players. And right now, it seems that they're you know six eight weeks on the road, and then there's just a disconnect. Second question: the players need do not understand in large part, and that's because they're tennis players. And when you're on the court, you want to be able to focus on the court. But that's also why you need to be able to trust the board members and know the board members so that in a short period of time, they can get your confidence. Make some great points, Tim. Uh, We've got Tim Mayotte on the show. And uh, Tim, I wanted to ask you of the remaining candidates. uh, Are there any in particular that that you would throw your support behind or, or on the other side, any that raise any red flags in your estimation? I think the candidate who's going to win is Weller Weller Evans, who uh, is a very respected person in the in the uh, tennis community. He has he was a tour manager and vice president of ATP Tour for many years, and really understands the game inside and out. There are some people who are concerned that he is really going to keep Justin in the loop. Um, and I think that's Novak's position is that he wants to have Weller and hopefully Justin is as part of the position. And that obviously concerns me to a certain extent, um, but that's their prerogative. And, and um, let's obviously hurt, hope that Justin gets his act together, first of all, and then that, that Weller, if he gets in uh, in the position that he's going to do a you know, job that's right for all the players, not just for uh, a certain sect of them. The other guys, I think Mark Knowles is highly respected and very much well-liked and smart guy. So I think he has a chance. Uh, Nicholas Lapenti, I think, has a good chance as well. And to me, those would be the primary candidates. But from what I understand, Weller Evans has the best chance. And uh, now that, of course, that you are out of out of the running, but uh, as you told our listeners before, you, you have worked with the, the board in the past. Do, do you still see yourself being able to have any impact on the direction the tour takes or uh, do you plan to do you hope to sort of step aside and leave that to others or it's something uh, you're still passionate about and, and want to be involved in? Well, I'm. I'm- I'm very, very passionate. The question is, can you have any impact? And I think the the main thing would be to continue with the, the push for no conflicts. And if I were to hear about them ongoing, I would definitely speak out. And, um, and then obviously, I think something as egregious as the situation with Justin, um, I would as well speak out against something like that. It was, it was just not right that, that he continued in that position for so long. Um, regardless of this last, uh, no contest slash guilty plea, he, he just shouldn't have been in that position with a, his issues, uh, the legal issues down the line, the way he's spoken about women. And then also, um, the fact that all the stuff that happened before he even had this last incident on Halloween night. So if there's somebody in there who's obviously not right for the position, I would speak out. As far as day-to-day issues, no, I I don't think I can really have a big impact. Um, But I will certainly throw throw some ideas out there now and then. 
Well, uh, we thank you so much for, for joining us on the program to, to talk about this because uh, it, it has been a topic at large. I, I think uh, tennis as a whole and the sport, uh, there have been uh, growing concerns about the, the direction and leadership. And uh, it's unfortunate in your case uh, that uh, you, you couldn't come to a vote uh, uh, for that vacant position as player rep on, a, on the ATP Council. But uh, it's great that uh, you're, you're staying involved and, and trying to have an impact uh, because we want to see these issues resolved and uh you know we want the best state of of the sport i think in, in tennis exactly. for years to come thank you so much well, i got one question for you guys yeah so i'm in new england northern culture northern weather how is canada producing so many good players now <laughs> we want to do we want to do it here in new england and uh, you guys are proving us uh proving all the folks here in New England say you can't do it in a cold weather climate. What's the secret? It's it's top secret, Tim. I got to tell you, it's a uh, deeply covert uh, Tennis Canada mission. And uh, if Ben or I speak about it, you know, we'll never be heard from again. So you'll just have to tune into uh, the uh, tune into the future episodes of the podcast, and maybe we'll divulge little secrets here and there for you. Uh, well, I'm so excited for you guys. You guys are producing so many great players. And it's good to kick our butts a little bit, and uh, that'll force us to catch up. Well, look, uh, we, we've said this in the past. We would love to. We get it in hockey a little bit. We would love to have a, a budding rivalry between top Canadian and American tennis players. How, how terrific would that be for years to come? Yeah. We could do like a, a labor cup, but between uh, between us and uh, Canada. Yes, uh, there's a goal. There's a goal for five, ten years right. from now. Well, problem is, we don't have a labor. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we don't. We have a Felix. We'll see. Uh, we'll see where he goes. Okay. Uh, okay. You. I just want to make one last plug, which is uh, here at the Tomat Academy. We're going to have a nice WTA sixty thousand dollar tournament in August, two weeks before the uh, U.S. Open. So it's, uh, we're bringing some pro tennis back to the Boston area, and uh, we just want to get the word out on that. That's fantastic, and that, and that's not that long a travel uh, away, and uh, certainly would be terrific to, to be down there in the summer and, and catch some live tennis. So uh, that uh, will be definitely on our radar. If we, can, if we can have a visit, we would love to catch up with you in person. Thanks so much, and, uh, and thanks for uh, talking about all these important issues. We appreciate that. Our guest, Tim Mayotte, uh, packed program on Matchpoint Canada today to have two guests. And uh, we've, we, we've tackled these uh, political issues now for almost a month. Um, I, maybe I told listeners last week that it, it's something that we were going to move past. But the vote is tomorrow. And if you're listening in the morning, the vote is today. And this is important. And uh, we made mention of the fact that Tim Mayotte was running for that vacant uh player rep spot and then didn't have the chance at all. And, and unfortunately, I don't feel like we're really any closer to, to fully understanding or, or nearing a sort of resolution to the deep-rooted problems that people like Tim are, are alluding to that exist mm-hmm. right now in the sport. It's not a Justin Gimmelstab issue. It's, it's bigger than that. And I think tennis really has to uh, clean up its act in a lot of ways. There, there's a lot of issues that uh, are going to have to be looked at long and hard that are going to go beyond you know the remaining few months now on Chris Commode's term or, or whoever succeeds him for the next three-year term. Uh, tennis has to 
to take a good long look in the mirror and decide, uh, you know, w- which way it wants to go and how transparent does it does it want to be? Because right now, I don't think transparency is really a word you could use with what's going on. There's way too much that we're left to sort of guess about and and wonder behind the scenes, and and I don't think it should be that way. No, certainly, certainly should not. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will catch you up with some uh, Canadian tennis news before we wrap up here. Uh, we we mentioned earlier that Bianca Andreescu, our guest last week, is out of Rome, but uh, to our understanding, and her coach has said that she still is intending to play at Roland Garros, so uh, we are looking for her there. It's still a question of if she plays a lead-up tournament or not. I'm sure that would be very helpful to get a bit of match play in. But It, uh, it looks unlikely from what I've heard. She'd require a, a wild card into the, one of the last two events in, uh, I want to say off the top of my head here, is it Strasbourg and, and Nuremberg? Yeah. Uh, and, and again, they really, you know, her coach Sylvain Bruno doesn't, and, and Bianca as well, they don't want to push it and go too early. Uh, you know, they want to make sure everything is absolutely perfect. I, I think she's got the kind of the game she can slip into Roland Garros, still be very dangerous, well-rested. And we talked about that earlier in the episode, how having some time off can work to your benefit at times. Yeah. Um, so uh, definitely Bianca is, is good to go for Roland Garros. It'll be interesting to see if Jeannie Bouchard uh, joins her there. I haven't heard anything official on that, but if you try and decipher some of Jeannie's uh, social media posts, I have seen her hitting on some green clay in the past few days. So that, to me, uh, you know, at least lends to the fact that she very well is still hoping to get in, a, a, you know, some clay court time in, in Paris before we switch over to uh, the grass court season. Yes, that's uh, certainly a good sign. And obviously she's had success on grass in the past as well. So that could be a, a nice lead up into a, a good portion of the season for her. Gabriela Dabrowski of Autumn. Ottawa making her first final of uh, 2019 with her uh, common women's doubles partner, Yifan Zhu. Uh, so great result there in Madrid. And she's someone who's won the mixed doubles title in Paris in the past, back in 2017. So reaching a final, one more major premier mandatory uh, getting underway in Rome. Uh, great opportunity for her to be playing the, the best doubles she's played this season, heading into another Grand Slam is great. Yeah, and Gabby's going to be a threat both in the women's doubles draw and, as you mentioned, the mixed doubles draw too. I spoke with her a couple weeks ago actually for a feature I'm writing for Ontario Tennis Magazine and uh, she just mentioned how much pride she takes in, in being known as a double specialist. She said, you know what, being a specialist in any field is something that anyone would be uh, you know, proud of mm-hmm. and uh, she's got her eye right now on the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, so definitely focusing primarily as she has in recent years on doubles, but she did mention to me and I kind of was surprised to hear this that after those Olympic Games she does plan on giving her singles career a real push that she says she hasn't been able to do in the past and she's interested to see what she can do uh, in that uh, realm of the game as well. I wouldn't have expected that, but very interesting to hear what Gabby's sort of, uh, you know, longer term plans are as a uh, professional tennis player. Yeah, and uh, we made note last week, it was interesting that she went down to an ITF in Spain and, and did play a singles tournament. So you can tell she still has the itch for, for the game of singles, which is, is great to see. Uh, y- you know, she feels like a veteran of the tour, but she's still 27 years old. There, there's time to uh, try that singles career out when she's... Uh, Felt like she's accomplished all that she's dreamed of in doubles, and she's already accomplished so much. Uh, and and finally, her first final in 2019 coming in Madrid is terrific as well. Uh, Denis Shapovalov picked up his first clay win of the ATP season. He beat Pablo Carreño Busta. Next stop is Novak Djokovic. But uh, for me, great to see Shapo snap that four-match losing skid. He had not been playing his best tennis. And uh, him and Carreño Busta have some interesting history. They had that tough uh, fourth-round clash back at the U.S. Open in 2016. 
2017. Carreno Boost is a tough customer on clay. I know he's not playing his best right now, but that's a good win for Shapovalov. Um, I, I'm setting the bar pretty low against Novak Djokovic, but it's pretty important for him to get a match win uh, heading to Roland Garros being right around the corner. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe he can catch Novak still a little bit tired off of his uh, run in, in Madrid. Yeah. Uh, but but either way, I think if he can just make that match competitive and work on some of the things in his game that, uh, you know, haven't been perhaps at his best lately, uh, you know, getting into those rallies a little bit longer and, uh, you know, having a little bit more patience when things aren't going so well. Um, I know he took to social media to complain a bit about uh, the sort of Hawkeye uh, debate lately. A lot of marks that have been called in, out, and, and perhaps incorrectly so. Obviously, Hawkeye doesn't work the same on clay as it does on hard court. But ultimately, I think Dennis just has to focus on the tennis on the court and, uh, and find a way to get into these matches. And hopefully, he's trending upwards for uh, Roland Garros. Yes, it uh, feels that way right now. Felix Ojeali, I see we mentioned, he lost to Borna Chorich in three sets, 6-7, 6-3, 6-4. Um, I alluded to this at the top of the show that we have an exciting giveaway. Obviously, part of this partnership with Tennis Canada means uh, we can offer some some swag, I- including uh, some ticket giveaways. We have Rogers Cup upcoming in Toronto um, for the summer. Uh, we have a couple tickets up for grabs. This will be for the daytime session Monday, August the 5th. And to qualify for the draw, all you have to do is... Follow us on Twitter if you're not already at MatchPointCan, and you retweet our latest episode, which will be this one, and we will pick a winner prior to next week's show, and uh, we'll get in touch with you. Get those pair of tickets mailed out, and uh, there you go. Monday, August fifth, see some fantastic women's tennis. Yeah, it'll be the uh, start of in our city. Start of the first round. All the courts will be uh, in action. You'll get to see uh, tons and tons of players up close, uh, not to mention all the, the top seeds in practice action as well. Yeah. And we're not even asking you to answer a skill testing question or anything. All you have to do is follow us and retweet us. So uh, there you go. How easy can that be? And I, I love those early round matches because uh, you see side courts, I, I think, are just fantastic. You'll get these great matchups, and we know uh, the way the women's tour is. Uh, so many different winners and so many fantastic early round matchups. It's uh, awesome to be there on the first day. Yeah, Monday, Tuesday, those are my favorite days of any tournament. When you got the courts packed, there's a real buzz in the air, excitement as everyone's just kicking off their tournament, and you can get so close here in Toronto to the action that if you haven't checked it out before, you got to make sure you do it this summer uh, here at the Aviva Centre. Absolutely. You have been listening to Match Point Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. That was Mike McIntyre. Big thank yous to our guests for the episode, George Belshaw and Tim Mayoff. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Match Point Can. Subscribe on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Match Point Canada. We will talk to you next week.